0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me. Let's turn first to, we have two passages of Scripture. Let's turn first to Romans 8. It was already, it's already been almost two months ago since I started um, a series of sermons on this passage, Romans 8, 28 through 30, All Things Are Good. And let me just briefly remind you a little bit about the context of this. The book of Romans was written to a church That as best we know, was not in particular difficulty. And after the introduction of Romans, from Romans 1 verse 18 through Romans 8 verse, um, verse 17, Paul has essentially been teaching the Church of Rome about the doctrines of grace. How is it that a sinful man can be made right with God? Last time we traced the outline of the book of Romans, we saw the doctrines of justification and sanctification. The passage we have before us, beginning at Romans 8, verse 18, is almost a pastoral interruption. We might think of Paul as conducting a catechism class, and as he comes, having taught the doctrines of grace, he comes in Romans 8, verse 18, And he stops and he says, For when I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He speaks to the church as a church in trouble. It's as if he is saying we have all these grand and glorious doctrines and I know you are struggling with issues. How do we connect those great doctrines of grace to the very practical problems that you are facing today? And he goes on, you may recall, in the section he talks about the creation groaning, the problems that come from the fall, the curse that came upon creation. Verse 23, he talks about we ourselves groaning with sin that remains in us. Verse 27, even the Holy Spirit is groaning with, and making intercessions with groanings. There's a pastoral element in what Paul is saying here. And there's an Advent expectation. He links their present circumstances to the coming of Christ and to the glory that is there. And then we pick it up at Romans 8, verse 28. When he says all of these things, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Last time we looked at these verses through the lens of the foreknowledge of God, those he foreknew. And we saw that God had a plan from all eternity, a plan that was greater than all the troubles they were facing. This afternoon, I want to look at these verses again, and this time through the second link in that golden chain, through predestination. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. To help us understand that and the gifts that come with predestination, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17. Here we have Jesus in the upper room on the night before his death. As we read this passage, I'd like you to notice with me especially the gifts that God gives to his church, to the people who God has chosen to be his bride. John 17, beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, as you, Father, are, one in, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me. That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me, where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I, in them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May God bless both the reading. And the exposition of it. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to start with a question, especially for our children. Yesterday was Christmas Day. And I know that in all of our families, we don't celebrate Christmas exactly the same way, but I would imagine that in most of your households, something special happened. Over the last few days, maybe you had family or friends over for dinner. Maybe you had a gift exchange. In one way or the other, you celebrated Christmas. When did you start planning to celebrate Christmas? Well, certainly not yesterday morning, was it? If you had a big meal laid out, it took Some planning on the part of the person who cooked it, probably your mom, to make sure the groceries were in the house, to make sure all the ingredients were there. If you received gifts, somebody had to go and shop for those gifts, and they didn't do that yesterday morning. There was a time of planning for Christmas. And inevitably, if we would dig into those plans, we'd find out that some of those plans probably even changed. And now I have another question for you. We know the real meaning of Christmas is to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus when he came to earth 2,000 years ago. When did God begin planning for Christmas? When did God begin the plan that Jesus would have to come to earth? This afternoon, our text involves an admittedly big word, predestination, five-syllable word. But I don't want you to get caught up in the details of that, although we will cover some of those aspects. But I want you to think, and if you walk away here able to answer two questions, you will have caught the essence of the sermon. And the two questions are this. When did God begin planning for Christmas? And secondly, what are all of the gifts that are associated with Christmas? What are the gifts that God has given for Christmas? Keep those two questions in the back of your mind. We will consider our text I have a theme in the bulletin, and that was the state of my notes on Wednesday, and it certainly is accurate, but I have updated the theme to God's eternal gifts list. First, gifts within the Godhead. Secondly, a gift for the Son. And thirdly, gifts for God's people. Predestination is often thought of as a difficult doctrine. And this, as I mentioned, when Paul is instructing us here in Romans, he lists predestination in that golden chain we talked about. In that golden chain, he links eternity past with God's foreknowledge to eternity future with glorification. We mentioned last time that while we consider the five links of the chain separately, we really need to think of it as all linked. You really can't talk about one without the other. For our purposes this afternoon, let me simply define predestination in this way. God made a list of lost sinners to whom he would give the gift of salvation. God made a list. From the whole human race, a world that was condemned, God chose some people and He made a list and He said, To these people, I'm going to give the gift of salvation. Now, I trust I don't need to spend too much time going through the scriptures to prove to you the fact of predestination. Indeed, our passage makes very clear Romans 8. And in John seventeen, several times Jesus talked about those whom you have given me. Acts thirteen forty eight, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Ephesians one three and four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Oh, indeed, there are hundreds of texts we could cite to establish the biblical fact of predestination or election When did this take place? When did God make this list? Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us, before the foundation of the world. And indeed, we can go through the Bible and we can find lots of references to God's divine counsel. What does that mean? Well, it means that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, and I say this reverently, we understand that God doesn't have meetings with himself in the way we have meetings, but let's use human terms because we really don't understand how the persons of the Godhead communicate with each other, and yet the Scriptures use human terms to help us understand that. It's as if God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a meeting before the world began. And in that meeting, they decided to save the people from the lost sons of Adam to redemption, to salvation. The decision, the Bible makes very clear, is a decision of the triune God. Yes, the Father took the lead, but it is a decision of the triune God. Now, there was a problem. Because while mankind had been created for the purpose of being in fellowship with God, God also knew that Adam and Eve would fall in the Garden of Eden. That the covenant of works would be broken. And so, in order for man to be saved, a covenant of grace had to be established and someone needed to be the mediator of the covenant of grace. That is the only way that God could save. And in that meeting, Christ volunteered. The second person of the Trinity volunteered to be the mediator of the covenant. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our work, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus. And Christ didn't have to be convinced of this. It was not as if the Father and the Son had to beg, or the Father and the Holy Spirit had to beg the Son in order to take on human flesh. No, we know that He was willing and enthusiastic. Psalm 40, verse 8: Lo, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In Hebrews 10, These words are quoted again, explicitly attributed to Jesus. And so God made a list. He made a list of those to whom he would give the gift of salvation. Why did he need a mediator? Well, catechism students, you may remember from Lord's Day 5, Remember, there's a whole series of questions at the beginning of this catechism in terms of what criteria a mediator had to have. In Lord's Day 5, it says, after confirming that neither animals nor angels nor anyone else could pay the price, the question is asked, what sort of mediator or deliverer must we seek for? One who is very man and perfectly righteous, because God will not have any other creature pay for the sin in that those who had committed it, but also one who is very God because it's only in the power of the Godhead that he must sustain the burden of God's wrath. And so in this council of peace, as we call that meeting, in the council of peace, Christ was selected to be the mediator of the covenant. And it is because of that decision that Christ came on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago, born as a baby. It is because of that decision. You see, the incarnation of Christ is a necessary consequence, an essential part of election. There are several texts that will get Too theological for here, but there are several texts that tie very much the election of God's people to the election of Christ. And so we might say in the very first sense that the gift of election is Christ giving himself to the other two persons of the Trinity volunteering to be the mediator of the covenant volunteering to humiliate himself. And what was the great humiliation? Oh, so often when we talk about Christmas, we think of the fact that because Christ was in a manger, because he was born in poor circumstances, that somehow that was his humiliation, to be sure it was. But you know, Christ would have been just as humiliated had he been born in the richest palace that ever existed. Because the humiliation of Christ is this. God became man. God who was eternal, who had all the blessings and power of the Godhead, took upon himself to become man. That is the gift that Christ gave. Philippians 2 verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus who being in the form did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient even to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so we have Christ as a gift Within the Godhead. But secondly, Christ not only was a gift to, in terms of the plan of salvation to the other persons in the Godhead, Christ also received a gift from the other persons of the Godhead. We see that in our text, don't we? Verse 29. He did predestinate him to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. Describing the incarnation of Christ here, Paul speaks of him as the firstborn among the brethren. Election is an act especially of the Father but it is of the triune God. And ultimately, it is for God's glory and that Christ might be lifted up. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says on this, the Son will be finally glorified when he and all his brethren are, as it were, on view to the whole cosmos. Christ has come to be the firstborn of the brethren, and we know, and we will follow this in future sermons, he will be glorified, but he won't be glorified by himself. With Christ being glorified will be his bride, the church. And indeed, when the whole world sees Christ and his bride exalted, then the full glory of God will be revealed. Those who are elect will he reign with him. Yes, Christ will be the ultimate. We won't become gods. We are the bride, though, of Christ. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you notice in the prayer that Jesus had, as we read it together in John 17, how repeatedly he highlighted this? Verse 21, he prayed, Lord, that they, speaking of the bride, the church, the elect, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus prays to his Father, and he prays for the church that he has been given as a gift. And he prays, Lord, grant that that church may be unified, and that that church may be in the same relationship to me, as I, the Son of God, have with you the fa- God the Father. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you've loved me from the foundation of the world. Christ is looking forward to the day at the end of time when he will be exalted and lifted up. And like the bridegroom, awaiting the adoration of his bride, Christ says, I'm looking forward to the time when the church may behold my glory which you have given me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because you chose me. Because in the gift of Christ becoming the mediator of the covenant, alongside that is that gift, that list of those who will receive the gift of salvation and become the bride of Christ. Christ desires that his bride may share in the glory which was given to him by the Father. Isn't this what we really have in Revelation 5? The bride of Christ gathered around the throne, singing to the Lamb, you are worthy. You were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, the bride of Christ adoring her husband. Oh, right now, the bride of Christ is not gathered fully yet, and so Christ prays that that church may be gathered, that it, the church may see the glory that is given to Christ by the Father. Yes, the elect are a gift of God of the Father to the Son. Jesus addresses his Father in John seventeen six. I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. The church is a gift given by the Godhead to the Son and they have kept your word. We go back to our text, Romans 8.30. For those he did foreknow, those he did predestinate. I mentioned Romans 8 was written to a church that was in trouble a church that was a groaning church. How is this a comfort to God's people in the midst of their trouble and groaning? Well, the triune God counseled in eternity before time began to be destined to choose some of Adam's fallen race to be saved and to become the bride of Christ. Christ volunteered willingly to become the mediator of the covenant, and that made the incarnation necessary. And if the purpose of the incarnation of Christ is that Christ receives the gift of the church in eternity as part of his glory, do you think that he's going to forget you in the midst of your trouble? Isn't that what Paul is really saying to the people in Rome? We talk about these grand and glorious truths of what happened in eternity, but don't think of this as disconnected from your present reality. If this is real, if this is the reason Christ came, do you think that God is going to forget you in the midst of your troubles? Do you think that God is going to abandon you when the glory of Christ requires His church to be gathered and to be lifted up and to give honor and glory to Him? Oh, church of Christ, you are part of the gift that the Father has given the Son. Oh, I can say and I must say based on the Bible that no matter who I meet, every human being has dignity and worth. Why? Because we are created image bearers of God, Genesis 1. We have a stamp of God on our forehead. We are a picture of God. And that is true of every human being. But what our text tells us is that from among the human race, God has gathered a church, a bride. And they are not only special because they are created in Him, they are even more special because they are part of Christ's bride. And all of history, including the glorification of the Son, comes through the gathering of the church and giving glory To the Father, you are part of Christ's bride. Oh, what a gift. The Son gives the gift of Himself, volunteering to take on human flesh. And the Father and the Holy Spirit give to the Son the gift of the church, that in all eternity He may delight in His bride. What about the church? Well, we see that in the third place. God gives gifts to his people. And there are so many more gifts than I have time to describe this afternoon. The scriptures are full of them. We sang just before the sermon from Psalm 111, Psalter 304. His saints delight to search and trace his mighty works and wondrous ways, majestic glory, boundless grace, and righteousness his works display. Well, yes, we could start with the fruits of the Spirit. These are the gifts that God gives to His church through the working of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5. Or we could go back even further and talk about the gift of faith, Ephesians 2. Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are united to Christ through faith, which is a gift that God gives to His church, to each member of it. This isn't a comprehensive list, but let's let's turn to John 17. As we go through the passage, once again, we will notice at least seven gifts that Jesus highlights just in this one passage. Did you see them as we read it? John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, Father. Jesus addresses God as His Father. But because Jesus is the mediator of the covenant and the firstborn of His brethren, what does that mean? It means we too can address God as Father. And indeed, elsewhere in the Scriptures, don't we have the comfort of the fact that we can go to God, not just as the Almighty, incomprehensible God who is different, who is distant and awe inspiring, but we can come to him intimately as our Father. Abba, Father. We can call him Dad. And he cares intimately for us. One of the gifts that the church receives because the Lord Jesus Christ came is the fact that she can call God her Father. The church is the bride of Christ. What happens at a wedding? You have a wedding. After the ceremony is over, we typically have speeches from the parents of the bride and of the groom. What does the parents of the bride typically say or the parents of the groom typically say to the bride, welcome to the family. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came means that the church of Jesus Christ is part of the family of God, and we can call him our father. There's somebody here this afternoon who's groaning, In times of trouble, I can preach to you this afternoon a heavenly Father who for the church of Jesus Christ is your Father for the sake of Christ. Lord's Day 9, what do you mean when in the Apostles' Creed you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty? Answer, that the eternal Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ his Son. My God and my Father. John 17, 23, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. And you have loved them, Jesus says, as you have loved me. Did you hear that? Struggling sinner? God loves you as he loves his son. I didn't make that up. Jesus said that to the Father. Because he is Christ's Father, he's also the father of his bride. We also have the comforts of his fatherhood. Secondly, verse 8. Through Christ we have knowledge of the truth. What does it say? For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known. Surely I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. And then in verse 14, what does Jesus says, I have given them your word. In this world of groaning in which there are so many troubles that we can't figure out, we have this. We have God's word. The God who, before the world even began, had this plan that we talked about last time. And not just a plan that applied to the whole human race, but a very special plan that applied to the church. As we will see next week, when we see the fact that those whom he predestinated, he also called. He not only gives the blessings to the church corporately, that's our focus today, the blessings on the corporate church. But then he effectually calls us and he brings that to each of our own hearts by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And that was all agreed to in the Council of Eternity. Oh, in this world of groaning, we can know there is so much more going on than can meet the eye. It's not speculation or wishful thinking. When we pray and we lay out the problems of the world and we have no answer, but we lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, you are in control, you're on the throne. And all things work together for good to those who love God. That's what Paul is saying here. This is an exposition of Paul's speaking to a church to say all things work together for good. How do we know that's true? We know it's true because he predestined the church from the foundations of the world. And among the gifts of that predestination also comes the truth of his word. We are not left in darkness. Thirdly, we are given faith. At the verse, end of verse 8, they have believed that you have sent me. John three sixteen. we have that famous gospel verse that God sent his son into the world. We often just quote verse 16. But in verse 17 it says, because otherwise the world was condemned. The world was condemned, but God sent his son into the world. We were blind by nature. We are enemies of God by nature. But God chose us and he opens our blind eyes and he grants that we may respond to the gospel by believing, by faith and repentance. Sometimes in our foolish pride, We're tempted to say that if we can't understand or explain things, then they must not be true. Especially, isn't it true, in times of temptation? Sometimes our old man raises himself up. But note what Christ says to his Father. We are given the truth, not based on what we figure out. No, the words which you have given me. Christ gives the Word, not as a historic document written thousands of years ago. But Christ gives us the Word, and with it comes the Holy Spirit to make it the living Word of truth that indeed can be the guide for our lives. We are given the truth through Christ, the words which you have given me, Christ says to the Father. That doesn't mean we're going to understand everything doesn't mean we're going to perfectly explain everything. But he says we will understand this, that they may believe that you have sent me. If we believe this, the essence of the gospel, that Christ was sent by God, that he bought for himself through the shedding of his blood a church, and that when we trust in him, when we believe on the words that Christ gives, the words of salvation, then indeed, All of life will take on new meaning for us. C.S. Lewis captures this so well in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only can I see it, but by it, I can see everything else. Children, have you ever been awake early in the morning just before the sun arises and you look out of the window and everything is dark. You can't see a thing. And then you see in the eastern sky just the tip of the sun beginning to come. As the sun rises above the horizon, soon all of a sudden you're not only looking at the sun, the whole world around you looks totally different. You can see by the light of the sun. We are given faith. Fourthly, verses 9 and 10, Christ prays for us. I pray for them, for those you have given me. What is Christ doing right now? He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. The bride of Christ is the object of the groom's prayers. You ever have it? Married couples or young people who are in a relationship that you're busy working, you're far apart from each other, but somehow you can't concentrate on what you're doing and your mind keeps going to your partner. Maybe it's something you forgot to say to them, maybe it's something you're looking forward to doing with them, but You are so distracted because your focus is on them. Well, Christ is perfect. He doesn't have distractions. But we know this. His eye and his heart is on his people. And even now, he is praying for them. Paul is writing to a church in trouble, dealing with all the troubles of life. And he's saying, consider this, those he foreknew he did predestinate. And look at all that is wrapped in the predestination. All of these truths that he has been unpacking. Fifthly, in verse 12, the church is kept in his protection. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you gave me, I kept. Not one of them is lost. Not one of them is lost. When we think of our families, when we think of any groups, there are some who are more important and less important. The other day, just outside the church door, one mother came back somewhat embarrassed. I held the door open for her. I forgot one of our children. We all do that, don't we? God never forgets. There are no small children in the bride of Christ. They are all his bride. Not one of them is lost. And they are kept in his protection. It's not that they have an easy life. It's not that the troubles they're facing isn't real. They're very real. But they're kept by God. Sixthly, verse 13, But now I come to you, and those things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The church not only receives reason for joy, they receive Christ's joy. My joy will be fulfilled in themselves. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That is what Jesus, or Christ, the second person of the Trinity, said in all eternity. His delight was in God and his perfect law. And he prays to the Father and says, My joy will be in them and it will be fulfilled. And where does this all lead? Finally, verse verse 21, that they may all be one in us. Union and communion, fellowship between God and his people, between the groom and the bride, intimate fellowship, perfect fellowship through all eternity. I began the sermon by saying, while it involved great, grand, and glorious truths that sometimes confuse us, including the doctrine of predestination. You would get to the heart of the sermon if you could answer two questions. When did God start planning for Christmas? And what are the gifts that are involved in Christmas? I've attempted to open before you this afternoon Romans 8 in the context of predestination. A plan filled with gifts. The counsel of eternity. Gifts from the Son to the Father, willingly becoming the mediator of the covenant. The gifts from Father and the Holy Spirit to the Son, giving to Him the bride. Gifts from God to His people. Salvation for after we die. Comfort for while we live. As we look at these gifts, can we not but stand back and say these are amazing gifts? Albert Einstein did not give much evidence in his life of being a believer. But his work was that of a scientist, and as he looked at science and nature, he declared, quote, there are no such things as dreary sights. There are only dreary sightseers if this scientist who looked at God's created world could, could conclude that the only thing you if you don't see the glory and the beauty of this, you need to look at yourself as a dreary sightseer because this is amazing, then I ask you, what is it when we look at God's plan of redemption? It Began with a plan made before the foundation of the world in which he predestined some to eternal life. We know the plan is real and reliable because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came, born as a baby in Bethlehem, the Word made flesh, and we beheld him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and glory. Christ Jesus himself was a gift that brings gifts to his people. Second letter to the Corinthian, Paul exclaims in doxology, "Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift." And in Romans 8, after laying out this in our text, Romans 8:28 to 30, what does Paul say? He says, "What shall we say to these things? If God be before us, who can be against us, who did not spare His own son? But delivered him up for us all, shall he not freely give us all things? Paul stands in amazement at the gifts that God provides to his people. And should his response not be your and my response also, who shall separate us from the love of God? Paul brings his list. Of all the possibilities, things that were very real for the first century church, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, peril, or sword. Can I offer rhetorically a 21st century list? COVID, cancer, family feuds, political fights, empty bank accounts, uncertain employment prospects, loneliness, bullying, broken friendships, loved ones who are far away physically or relationally. Melancholy at the loss of someone close. Disappointment at another year in which government regulations have interrupted our Christmas traditions. And all the list could go on. Paul's not saying that this stuff isn't real. What he is saying is when you look at this stuff in light of what God has done. Then indeed you can only proclaim who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, he says, for in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Indeed, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are predestined. oh come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, your word is filled with such grand and glorious truths. Lord, you have shown us something of us, of that divine counsel, that plan of predestination before the world began. And we confess we don't understand these things. They are way too big for us. And yet, Lord, you've given them to us for our comfort. Especially as we have opened up Romans 8, Lord, we see Paul pointing to these facts as a reason that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can live in confidence, knowing indeed that eternity past is connected to eternity future, that ultimately the foreknowledge of God leads to predestination, which results in predestination will through calling and justification bring us one day to be glorified with you. O Lord, hasten that day when our faith may be sight. Lord, we pray, work with your Holy Spirit. If there are any among us, Lord, who are strangers to grace, grant that they may come to the Savior knowing that the promise is real, that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will receive the gifts that he has promised. Oh, we pray, work mightily from the youngest to the oldest also among us this afternoon. Be with us as we go from this place. Grant us a blessed week. Bring us safely together as a congregation on Friday evening again and again next Lord's Day. Lord, we will grant you, give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.